Bibles, please turn them to the first book. Uh, we're in cha- uh, Genesis uh, chapter 3. Meredith McElmurray will be reading our passage for today. There you are. Great. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from him among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, "Was this you? Was the, what is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel." This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Happy Father's Day. And a young father in uh, first service, he was wearing a t-shirt that had a big, big picture of Darth Vader, and the caption was, number one dad. Um, so, yeah, we're just trying to keep the bar low for all you fathers this weekend. Uh, well, last week, if you weren't here, we started a, a series that's going to take us through the fall. I'm sorry, through, through the summer to the fall. And uh, what we're going to do this summer is take a long look at Jesus Christ and to consider him, to hopefully experience him in the fullness and really the rich diversity of all of who he is and what he has done for us. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to look at some of the Old Testament themes and stories and prophecies that, that point to him. And see how he is the fulfillment of all this, this great story that God's been telling. So each week we'll take a specific theme and trace it through and see how Christ is the fulfillment of that. All of this hopefully to uh, increase our appreciation for Jesus. And just see truly who he is and just what a, the fullness of all that he is. I think it's going to be a really uh, enjoyable and uh, hopefully educational and, and more importantly worshipful experience. 
So last week I started by just giving us the overview of the story. Before we jump into the specific stories, I wanted us to hear the story of God's relationship with the world that culminates in the person of Jesus Christ. So I gave you that amazing multimedia presentation. Um, and uh, some of you this week have asked, hey, can I, I would love to have access to that. And so uh, I want to give you access to that. Um, if you go onto our homepage, gracefellowshipchurch.org, uh, if you scroll down just a little bit, we have all these shortcuts. And you'll see on the bottom left that shortcut, and it says the story of God. Click on that. That will take you to about a 20-minute video, which is exactly what you saw with my lovely voice doing a voiceover. Um, and you can kind of hear the story in about a 20-minute version. And uh, I want to make that available if you missed last week or if you want to see it again, or hopefully it could be a tool like to show to your kids or, or different people. So I, I think as Jesus followers, that's a story that we all want to be able to tell. We should all be able to tell that story. And so this is one tool to help you be able to tell that story. So today, having talked about the story as a whole, we're going to jump into the first theme going all the way back to the beginning, to Genesis and the garden. And this great prophecy, really the first prophecy in Scripture in, in verse 14 and 15, uh, that there's going to be this epic battle, this conflict between the woman and the snake and her offspring and his, and, and that uh, there would be an offspring of the woman who would come and defeat the ancient serpent. It's what scholars call the proto-evangelium, the first announcement of the gospel, the good news about Jesus. And so I want to talk about that and see what we learn about Jesus through that. Um, first, just a little bit of background on the story. This is a very familiar story to most of you. Um, but let me show you if you missed last week. Let me get you back into the images. Um, so just to, to we're going to move towards uh, verse 14 and 15. But just the context is, of course, God has taken this, the first couple. Uh, he's placed them in this beautiful garden. They are his image bearers. They're, they're called to rule and to garden and cultivate God's good earth. Uh, it's a beautiful place. They have everything they can need. And God puts one limitation in the garden, right? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And with that one limitation, I believe that God, in essence, is saying to this couple, he's saying, I want you to trust me, okay? Trust that I know what is good for you and that I know what is evil for you. Trust that I know what will be helpful for you and unhelpful. I don't want you deciding for yourselves about what's right and wrong, what's good. Trust me. Trust that I love you, that if you obey me, follow me, it will lead to a flourishing life for you. I think that's what the tree is doing there. But of course, as we learn in the reading, there is an enemy, right? The serpent. Uh, And he comes asking questions. And his goal is to uh, plant a seed of doubt in their minds. And this is the doubt he wants to plant. Actually, you cannot trust God. Um, Why is God withholding this great tree from you? What kind of a God would keep his kids back from something as great as this tree? God doesn't have your best in mind. God doesn't want what's best for you. He's holding you back. From a full life. I think that's the, that's the doubt. So you need to take your life into your own hands. You need to decide for yourselves what is good and what is evil. You can't de- depend on God for that. You've got to take your life into your own hands. And so the couple buys into this lie. And they eat the fruit. And as we just heard, uh, sin enters their heart and enters their world. And all of a sudden, their nakedness that originally was a wonderful thing, they experience as shameful, and they start trying to cover themselves up. And God walks into the garden, and rather than running to him like his kids, they want to hide from his presence. And then we have that lovely uh, moment where Adam blames his wife and God for the problems that have happened. So basically, you have the the, the goodness and shalom of the garden uh, has been uh, broken. 
And uh, so, so God then enters into the story, and in verse 14, he starts pronouncing these consequences on each of the people. First the serpent, and then Eve, and then Adam. And we're going to look at the consequence that he pronounces on the serpent, and the good, the good news that's actually right there in that consequence. Um, so before we look at those verses, though, I, I want to do a little close-up on this serpent, okay? And I want to talk about him for a couple minutes. So there he is. And what I want to suggest is um, there's more than meets the eye to this snake in the garden, all right? Um, We should hear about him and think, that's strange that a snake is talking. Not all the snakes of the garden talked. It's not like animals could talk. So I think we're supposed to think there's something different about this snake. And ultimately, what we learn as we read scripture is actually there is a dark spiritual power behind this snake. This snake has um, become possessed, essentially, by a spiritual power, a spiritual person that is using the snake as his mouthpiece. We're going to talk about him today. He is referred in the rest of scripture as, to as the Satan, uh, which means the adversary or the opponent, the enemy. He is the great enemy. That is a title, the Satan. It comes over time to basically be a name for him, Satan. But his name means the adversary. Uh, and he is of, I, I think the best way is, he is of mysterious origins. I mean, you get to Genesis 3, and you ought to be going, what the heck is this evil snake doing in God's good creation? There's nothing up to this point that would let, lead us to think a creature like this would be there. And we're not giving an answer for how he got there or what he's doing there. And if you read the rest of scripture, you only get one or two references to something before the story. You get two verses, one in, in Jude, one in Second Peter. They're just verses that talk about the idea that long ago there are these angels that sinned and that basically fell from their place in heaven. We get almost no detail about what that story is, okay? Later, medieval thinkers kind of fill in the details. So you have this whole story of Satan falling, all, all this stuff in your head. That's, not, that's kind of extra biblical. We just get the, just the bare essence of it, that something happened, and, and Satan is this spiritual being, angel, that rebelled, that fell. And that's kind of all we know. But it's a fairly mysterious story, and apparently God doesn't think we need to know all the details of that story. Uh, What we do know about this is his goal is to oppose God. He hates God. And because of that, he wants to oppose God's image bearers. Um, He wants to separate them from God. Ultimately, he wants uh, them to make choices that will lead to their own destruction and death. That's his goal. Uh, And his strategy, he has some pretty consistent strategies as you read about him throughout Scripture. Let me tell you three of them. The first strategy is temptation. And that's clearly what we see in the story of Adam and Eve, right? Uh, He tempts people to do things that are outside of what God would want from them. And and the ultimate temptation is always this. It's to believe something about who God is. And that something is you cannot trust him. (laughs) He does not have your best in mind, okay? He's withholding good things from you. You can't trust him. You, you, you You have to take matters into your own hands, and then you go off and do these things that look good because of that. But temptation is is a big strategy of his. Um, Accusation is another strategy. And that plays itself out in a couple ways. He accuses God in our hearts. Okay, And that's what he does with Adam and Eve, right? He's he's accusing God of being unloving, of being ungenerous. He's placing the seed of doubt of God's character in their hearts. He's making accusations about who God is. He's not a loving father. And the other way he accuses is he accuses us before God. 
So if you read the story of Job, remember the story of Job that starts where God's up in heaven with the angels and the Satan appears and he starts accusing Job before God. He says, you know, Job, he looks like a good guy, but you take some away some of the blessings, he won't keep following you. He accuses him. And then thirdly, uh, he uses intimidation. And you see this throughout scripture. The first two are, are more subtle tactics. Uh, when those don't work, he just resorts to intimidation. He's just a big bully in the end. Uh, Jesus says he was a murderer from the beginning. So these are some of the strategies you see him use throughout scripture. And before I, I move on, I, I would like to just try to make this personal <laughs> for a second, okay? And for you to, to feel this today and to ask ourselves, do, do we not experience these three strategies in our lives. Um, right now, this week, many of us have experienced temptation. Uh, many of us have experienced uh, acute temptation. It may be uh, sexual in nature. It may be financial in nature. It may be, it may be food, just like Adam and Eve. <laughs> it may be about ambition or control or relationships. Uh, But many of us know very well those voices of temptation. And let me just say it again. There's always a surface temptation, but underneath the temptation, there's the deeper temptation to believe something about God, which is I can't trust him. He doesn't have my best in mind. I'm not going to experience true life if I follow him. That's why I need to pursue one of these other things, because I think this will give me, at least in the moment, more happiness, more joy, more fulfillment. But we, many of you, many of us, have experienced temptation this week. Um, Accusation. Uh, Many of us wrestle with that voice of accusation. And a lot of times temptation and accusation go hand in hand. You know, like Satan tempts us to do something, and then we do it, and then we feel really bad, and then the voice of accusation comes. So it's a nice little one-two punch he delivers. Um, But many of you are experiencing that now, that there are are voices of, of guilt, of shame, of, of condemnation, of even self-hatred at times. And these aren't things that you tell other people, but there are things that you have done. There are things that have been ten, done to you. And you experience that, the weight of those dark voices in your life. And it leaves you um, afraid to pursue God in a more intimate way. Because you, you kind of feel like, you know, in light of my life, I'm kind of like second-class Christian. Like, I don't deserve, like, first-class, you know, status with God, where I can really experience joy and intimacy with God. And I'm afraid to kind of pursue that, because I know all this stuff's going to come up. So I've, I've just kind of settled for this, this, this sort of second-class, go-with-the-flow. But underneath, there's some, there's some hard voices shouting at me, and I try to calm them as much as I can, but they're there. And then, of course, for some of us, it's, it's intimidation, uh, these voices that cause fear, anxiety, these events that take place in our lives that just kind of bowl us over. And we just feel like we're just, just kind of getting hammered by, by life. So all that to say, um, we all know this, okay? And I'm not saying here right now that, that, all, you know, um, that Satan himself is personally responsible for, for all the sin and brokenness in your life, all right? Um, I don't think that Satan is omnipresent, Okay, I don't think scripture shows that he can be everywhere all the time. He's not omniscient like God. Like God. I don't know if he can even hear this conversation right now. Um, so I, I don't want to give him more credit than he deserves. Um, but there is, um, there's a network. <laughs> there's a network of spiritual force in, in the world. And um, I'll hear a lot of Christians when we talk about Satan, they'll respond, uh, I think appropriately, but they'll say, you know, I don't feel like I need help making bad decisions. Like I, I kind of do that on my own. 
Um, and I would say, yeah, I don't either. But the fact is we do have help. <laughs> Scripture consistently paints this picture that there, that, um, there is more to the evil in, in the world than just bad human choices. Scripture consistently paints it that underneath bad human choices, there are spiritual forces. There is a darkness that is real, um, that is personal, that is mysterious, but is at work. This is how Paul says it in Ephesians. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood alone, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And somehow Satan is kind of in charge of this. And I want to acknowledge it's becoming increasingly popular in a lot of Christian circles to basically discount the existence of Satan. Okay, increasingly Christians say, I, I think it's just a metaphor. Um, and I think people have this picture, this stereotype picture of like this guy in a red suit with, you know, a pitchfork and horns. And it's a really easy image to dismiss. Like, hey, we live in a scientific age now and um, we know better than that. Um, and I just want to say from cover to cover and including Jesus himself, scripture consistently affirms the existence of real spiritual evil, again, that's beyond just bad human choices, and that Satan is personal, he's real, he's there. Uh, it's, a, it's sort of mysterious, but it's a very real thing. And my point in saying all that is, uh, to set up uh, verse 14 and 15, is that what scripture affirms then, in light of that, is that the human condition is such that we don't just need, like, personal improvement. We don't just need personal reforming. We actually need to be delivered from a spiritual darkness. We need somebody to deliver us as part of the solution to our problems. So with that, let's take a look at verses 14 and 15. So uh, follow on with me in your Bibles. If you don't have them, I'll put them up on the screens. But if you've got it, take a look at your own Bible. So um, God starts pronouncing these consequences, and he starts with the serpent, okay? How are we doing? You guys all with me so far? Yeah? Okay. So um, I think what's important to realize in these two verses, God is both pronouncing judgment on the snake itself, but also the dark power underneath the snake. And I think that will help us understand what God is doing. He's doing both of those at the same time. So let's look at verse 14. Okay? God says this to the snake. Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly... And you will eat dust all the days of your life. Okay, there it seems like he's referring to the serpent. What we would, an animal that we call the snake. Saying, you're going you're gonna to eat dust all the days of your life. I have people ask me, does that mean snakes had legs um, before this? I would say probably not. Um, probably what's happening is um, God is giving a new significance to the fact that snakes crawl on their belly. And that significance is you will eat dust. Okay, that is biblically an image of, of shame and humiliation. We still use it today. You get in a race with someone, what do you say to them? Eat my dust, right? Eat my dust. I'm, I'm going to beat you. Okay? It's a picture of shame and humiliation. He's saying, that's what you're going to experience, serpent. You tried to take authority over the man and the woman, but you will be subjected to humanity. And snakes are subjected to humanity. Okay, so this seems to be uh, a judgment on the snake. But then in verse 15, I think he moves from the snake to the dark power behind the snake, to Satan himself. So think well with me right now. This is very interesting. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. 
So three specific things being said. First, I will put enmity or hostility between you and the woman. I think that's pretty clear from the passage. We've already seen the hostility that he's creating between them. And then he says this, and hostility between your offspring, serpent, and hers. He's saying, you will each have a line of descendants, and there will be this epic battle of conflict between your descendants. Okay, interesting question. I think it's obvious who the woman's descendants are, right? People like Abel and Seth and Abraham, Moses, David, right? They're the line. Um, Who are the offspring? Who are the descendants of the serpent? I believe that the biblical answer is actually quite surprising. Um, I don't think the answer is snakes. I don't think we're talking about the epic battle between humans and snakes down the ages. Okay? Uh, I don't think the answer is demons, like the spiritual demons. Uh, I don't know of anywhere that talks about Satan fathering demons. Um, I think the descendants of the dark power are those who are seduced by the darkness. I think it's those people that he leads into rebellion against God. I think that's the biblical answer. You'll have to decide for yourselves. Um, So what we're seeing is is these two lines of of humanity, some that are people of faith and some that are seduced by the darkness into active rebellion in God in the conflict that exists between them. Okay, if that is the right answer, then it makes a lot of sense of the next story in chapter 4 of Genesis, which you get these two sons, Cain and Abel, right? And what we find out is one is the seed of the woman and one is the seed of the serpent. And the serpent deceives and leads Cain into rebellion and he murders his brother Abel. We see that conflict in the next line. Um, It also makes a lot of sense of some things that happen in Jesus' ministry when he's in conflict with the religious leaders of his day. Remember all the conflict he has. I want to just show you a, a, a moment where they're having a conversation about their fathers, okay? Now, Keep in mind that passage. Um, Jesus says to them, I'm telling you what I've seen in in my father's presence, and you're doing what you've heard from your father. Uh, They respond, well, Abraham is our father, they said. Uh, Jesus says, no, if you were Abraham's children, uh, then you would do what Abraham did. No, you're doing the works of your own father. Uh, They say, no, the only father we have is God himself. And Jesus responds, no, if God were your father, you would love me for I have come from God. No, this is not a nice thing to say. Uh, You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He's he's saying, no, no, you, who's your father? You're you're the descendants of the serpent. You've been deceived in his darkness. So God is is pronouncing this this epic battle between these descendants. And then finally... Uh, And most importantly, this is where we're really going to focus on the last two lines. Then God says, he, meaning some future individual descendant of the woman, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So he's saying your descendants will fight. And then one of the woman's descendants will do battle, not against one of your descendants, but directly against you. So the prophecy is this, a future descendant, individual person will fight against the serpent himself And it says, basically, and it's going to be a bloody battle. And there's going to be injuries on both sides. Uh, He's going to crush your head, and you're going to crush his heel. And it's it's an amazing prophecy about the coming of Jesus, who is going to wage war with the serpent himself. And it's going to be bloody. It's going to be hard fought, and there's going to be sacrifices on both sides. Uh, Jesus' heel will be crushed in his death, (laughs) 
But Satan's head will be crushed. The, 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 the seed of the servant will d- deliver the decisive blow and win the victory, but it will be a very hard-fought victory. Do you see that? Yes? Okay. Um, isn't that amazing? Like, this is like thousands of thousands of thousands of years before Jesus. At the very beginning, in the scriptures, there is already a prophecy that a future human being would come and defeat Satan, but at great cost to himself. It's pretty amazing to me. It, it, I, I look at them like, gosh, this stuff may be true. Like, this could actually be true. Um, it's possible. Um, so let's, let's now, let's look at the ministry of Jesus, okay? With this lens on of, of this, being this future descendant who would come and wage war against the serpent and defeat the serpent in battle, all right? So when we go to Jesus in the Gospels, um, Jesus is born, we're told he is born of a woman, is what Paul says, meaning he is, he is one of the offspring of the woman of, of Eve. And he comes as our champion, as our victor, to engage in battle with our ancient foe. Okay, this is how the Apostle John says it. He says, the reason the Son of God appeared. Why did Jesus appear? It'd be interesting to like ask you right now and to fill in the blank and see what we would all say. And there's lots of, I think, accurate, right answers John says, here's the reason the Son of God appeared. The reason he appeared was to destroy the devil's work. He's come to destroy the devil's work. And so I want to just walk you through real quickly parts of his life. Think about his birth, okay? Think about how the birth of Jesus happens in the book of Matthew. So he's born, and right from the beginning, Satan is active trying to take this little seed down from the beginning. Matthew 2, King Herod, um, who is, I think, a descendant of the serpent in that sense, King Herod gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. So from the beginning, Satan just tries to wipe Jesus out. It's like, game on. I'm, I'm going to try to take you down. Of course, God rescues Jesus out of that experience. Then think about how his ministry begins. Okay, what's the first thing that happens? When he, he becomes 30, his public ministry, he's baptized right? Where he learns that he is, uh, through a voice from heaven, he is God's beloved son. And then where does he go right after his baptism? Into the desert, right? He goes into the wilderness, Matthew 4. Uh, This verse has always staggered me. Uh, Then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So the spirit of God specifically leads him into the wilderness for the purpose of of being tested by the tester for the purpose of spiritual battle, to begin to wage war against Satan. And the question of the test will be, what kind of a man is Jesus? What kind of a king is he going to be? And so there's these echoes of of the Garden of Eden story, where just as Adam and Eve were tested, Jesus is now being tested. The context is incredibly different. Okay, Adam and Eve, the context is this lush, beautiful garden, They have everything they could want. They have all the food that they could possibly want. One limitation. But everything, they look around them and everything would tell them, God loves me. God is generous. God is a good father. Jesus is thrown into the wilderness where it is not lush. It is hot and dry. There is no food. There's very little water. He looks around at his circumstances. There's nothing that would tell him that his father loves him. And his father is a good father. So he's basically sent into the chaos created by the first Adam. And he has to have the test there, not in paradise. But Satan's strategy is essentially the same. 
he comes to Jesus in the wilderness. He hasn't eaten for 40 days. It's a long time. Uh, and he, um, he says, if you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread, right? If you are the son of God, and what he's doing there is he's calling into question his Jesus father. If, if you're the son of God, implication is, well, if you're the son of God, what, what the heck are you doing out in the wilderness starving to death? What kind of a God sends his son into the wilderness to, to not eat for 40 days? That's not a very loving father. That's not a, a God, a father who provides for his son. You need to take matters into your own hands. You're the Messiah. Turn these stones into bread. Okay? Same st- strategy, just very different context. And, of course, the beauty is where the first Adam and Eve failed, this second Adam succeeds. And at every point, he trusts in his father's love, in his father's goodness. And he goes the way of trust and dependence and obedience. He wins. And he emerges from the wilderness as the victor. And then he enters into his public ministry, having already experienced a great victory. And you start to see evidence of this victory in his public ministry. So I'm thinking specifically, he starts going around the towns of Galilee. And he starts casting out demons, right? Left and right. These demon-possessed people come. And he's casting them out. And what he's doing is he's, he's healing people from, from Satan. He's, he's bringing people back into a place of wholeness. Back into what it means to be made in God's image. He's freeing them from that ancient enemy. And in the the process, he's demonstrating his authority over Satan, his power over Satan. Um, People ask Jesus about all these, about him casting out demons. And he tells this little parable. He says this, well, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Uh, Then he can plunder the strong man's house, right? If, If you guys ever thought about robbing a house. Um, if there's a strong guy in the house, you've got to first tie the person up, right? You tie him up, deal with him. Then you can take his possessions. And uh, it's helpful information. Um, and Jesus says, that's what I'm doing. I've tied up the strong man. I've tied up Satan. All of, all of what I'm casting out, it's, I'm just plundering his property now. It's evidence that the, the strong man has been bound by someone stronger. Now I'm taking his possessions. I'm reclaiming human beings for God. Okay? demonstrating his authority. Uh, And this is really happening in the first century. So you have his ministry. And then, of course, to kind of round out this picture of Jesus as our our victor, um, we have, most importantly, his death and resurrection, right? What he does on the cross and the victory that he accomplishes for his people on the cross. Let me just show you two verses about the cross. I love this one. This is Paul in Colossians. Talking about the cross, he says, God has canceled the charges of accusations which stood against us. He has taken them and nailed them to the cross. Then he says this, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle over them, triumphing over them by the cross. Uh, The word that really caught me this week is that word disarmed. On the cross, Jesus and God have disarmed Satan, okay? Meaning Satan had these weapons. We talked about those weapons of accusation and temptation and, and intimidation. What Jesus did on the cross is he stripped Satan of those weapons. He says, yeah, those, those, those weapons don't have the same power they had anymore because of what I've done on the cross. Uh, I love uh, this passage here. Since the children have flesh and blood, Jesus too shared in their humanity so that by his death on the cross, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. So he has broken the power of death and freed us from the fear of death. 
All right, so these are just touch points of what Jesus has done. And of course, the full defeat of Satan awaits the second coming of Christ when he will return and defeat him once and for all and finally and remove him from the presence of God's people. All right, so all of that, I know that's, that's a lot to take in, but all of that to, to consider Jesus today and this one aspect of who he is and what he's done, Jesus as our champion, as our hero, as our victor, as the one who has come to engage in battle with our ancient foe. And the beauty is he is one of us. One of our own has done it. One of the woman's descendants has done it. But he has done for us what we were not strong enough to do for ourselves. Just to conquer our spiritual enemy. So we live now in this new covenant, in a new age, where Satan is a defeated foe where he has been disarmed. And if you read the New Testament, the consistent posture of the New Testament is this. Satan, yes, he is still alive. He's still active. Uh, But believers can absolutely stand their ground with him. They do not have to be pushed around by him because of what Jesus has done in the cross and resurrection. That is the consistent posture. Yes, real, alive, active. And we do not need to be pushed around anymore as God's children. Amen? So the, the final question that what I want to leave you is, with is, is how do we live, practically, how do we live in light of the victory that Jesus has won for us? How do we uh, live within that victory? How do we experience that victory? And I think the answer is very simple. I think the biblical answer is very simple. How do we live in that victory? We live by faith. <laughs> We live trusting in who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Trusting in the promises that we have in him and the truth of what he's done through the cross and resurrection. Let me show you this passage. Very well known. Uh, Finally, I think this is ultimately about faith. Paul says this. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Okay, how do you be strong in somebody else's power? How is that possible? Well, I think it's possible by faith. Trust in the power that the Lord has for you. Uh, Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes so that when the day of evil comes, you will not be pushed around, but you may be able to stand your ground. All of that is to say, trust in the Lord. Be strong in his power. So let me leave you with this question. Where do you feel like you're being pushed around? These days, Um, where do you feel the spiritual conflict in your life? And what would it look like to live by faith in that part of your life right now, this week? So let me go back to those weapons for a second. Um, The weapon of temptation, like I said, some of us are, are experiencing pretty significant temptation right now in our lives. And underneath the temptation is the deeper temptation, right? God is a withholder. God doesn't have your best in mind. There is life to be found, better life to be found outside of him. What does it mean to live by faith in temptation? I think part of what it means, it means to go to the cross, to the victory that Jesus won on the cross. And to look at the cross and see God offering his son for you, see the son offering his life for you, and look at the cross and say, no, God is not a withholder, right? He has not withheld his only son, the thing that is 
most valuable and precious to him, he has given us and he has given him us freely. There is nothing God won't give us. He's a very generous God. He's not a withholder. He wants good things for us, which is say we can trust him. We can trust that if we follow him, that it will lead to our ultimate fulfillment more than anything else. And I can promise you this, whatever you are tempted in right now, whether it's sex or food or ambition or you name it, money, okay, those things do not care for you like God cares for you, (laughs) okay? They will use you and they will spit you out the minute they're done with you, okay? They do not have the track record that God has. They are not generous towards you. They do not care one lick for you. Only God has a track record of demonstrating he's not a withholder. He, he has given you the most valuable thing he can possibly give. And so by faith and temptation, we lay hold of that. God, I'm going to trust right now. Right now, this is feeling real good, but I'm going to trust that your ways are better. That's how we live by faith. That's how we don't get pushed around. Um, what about uh, accusation? Right? Some of you are in this season of your life, those voices of shame and guilt and accusation are, are particularly heavy. Satan's arrows, to use the Ephesians 6, are shooting into your heart. And what we need to do is take up the shield of faith. And what faith does is say, here's the cross. <laughs> Go to the cross and r- remind yourself by faith. All of those voices, all the things that, that I hate about myself, those things that I've done that are legitimately bad and what I deserve from those things, those have all been laid on Jesus Christ. All those accusations have been nailed to the cross, okay? He has dealt with all of it. Everything that needs to happen for me to, to be free from that has taken place. It took place 2,000 years ago. It's done. It's finished. There's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ who put their trust in Jesus. Go to the cross and say, God, it's nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. I don't have to do any amount of penance. I don't have to do any amount of self-punishment. All I have to do is simply receive God by faith. Thank you that the gift of your love and full forgiveness and acceptance of me is mine. I am not a second-class Christian. I can experience first-class, like, intimate relationship with you because of that. That's what it means to live by faith. One more. What about that um, intimidation? Maybe uh, there's just these voices of fear uh, and anxiety and you feel like um, you're just getting bullied around. Again, to go to the cross and look at at the cross. You know what Jesus did on the cross with Satan? He basically said, give me your best shot. I'll take the best shot you got. He let him give him his best shot and he was killed. And he said, that's all you got. And then he conquered death and he rose from the dead. And he's conquered death. And really in the end, what can Satan intimidate us with? Death? That's, all, that's, the, that's the best that he's got. And so when we live by faith, we go, okay, you can, you can throw that on me. Well, that isn't so bad, <laughs> Satan. Jesus has conquered death. You can kill me. All you do is throw me in the arms of, of my Savior. And so anything less than that, I think I can handle too. That's what I think it means to live in the victory. That is the victory that overcomes the world. That is the victory that overcomes Satan, our faith. Faith in Jesus Christ, our victor, our hero, our champion. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, it's pretty amazing to see (laughs) promises you make thousands of years earlier come to fulfillment in pretty specific ways, uh, in ways that I, I just go, man, 
there's only one way that happens, and it's because you, you really exist, and your word is really true, and you really are in control of history. And today on this Father's Day, we thank you as this loving Father who sent his Son to be our champion, to conquer uh, the dark, oppressive forces in this world, to free us to begin to live as your children. Not perfectly now, but increasingly as those who are loved by you and can experience the freedom of life with you. We are so grateful for him. Help us even this week to celebrate him and to live within the victory, to put our trust again, to not get pushed around, but to stand our ground by faith in what Jesus has done and who he is. So empower us this week through your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.